first selection of air crew with the uh, Air Force. Worked with uh, two years for the RCMP, uh, yeah. two years at a psychiatric hospital. I'm not sure where that is. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and he worked 12 years as a psychologist for selection of uh, Canadian uh, Special Operations Forces, from the assaulters to the close support workers that uh, worked with uh, Special Forces here in Canada. He's a published author. Uh, his book of mind- Mindfulness Starts Here. A Year of Ma- Mindful Living is his next one coming out. And uh, like I said, he's a respected psychologist and a Matt, I'm proud to call my friend. And over to you, Frank. So, so Steve, thank you. Thanks for saying I'm respected twice. I kind of needed that. <laughs> so, uh, the order is is interesting uh, because it, it sort of uh, gives the perspective that I have, which is that I I first started working as an organizational psychologist for the Canadian Armed Forces. I was recruited right out of university and stayed there for 10 years doing air crew selection research. Uh, For whatever the reason, the story is too long for the podcast, I I chose to leave and wound up working at a psychiatric hospital for two years, uh, which was not, uh, it was was an eye-opening experience recognizing uh, to some extent the uh, the integrity as well as the uh, attention to detail that members of the forces have that often is not as prominent in organizations that are just a touch more uh, loose with uh, how they deal with people. And then I, uh, I was recruited to do the same, to do the working personnel selection research with the, with the RCMP at the Canadian Police College, and from there went into private practice. As a part of my private practice, uh, I was, we were we were recruited to do some work for Cansaw in 2007, and stayed with Cansaw to, to 2018. When uh, I'll, I'll, uh, I'm 77, when my knee gave out and I couldn't drive uh, crazy, not crazy spaces over over crazy distances anymore. Well, when I said you were well respected, um, you were well respected among the the troops that you uh, saw at Kansoff, which is the Canadian Special Operations Forces. For for those that don't know, um, many of the guy came out of your office go go, and that old guy really knows what he's talking about, so, <laughs> which is high praise, as you know from those guys. Yes, and so thanks very much. I mean, truthfully, if you get old enough and listen to people who know more than you do, and most people know more than I do, you get some wisdom on the way. But also, what I think is important is that if you start off not seeing people as mental health issues, which is how I started with Canadian Forces, but see people as being individuals who can use their skills that are sometimes, if you think about uh, what some of the people in aircraft do, using their skills that are really, for most people, kind of exotic, and some people would call just plain crazy, in order to be very, very confident at a very difficult job. And so you have a different perspective on who you're seeing, is that you don't immediately see them as having a mental illness. You see them as having some things going on that really aren't working out very well for them right now. Well, that's an interesting point you raise, um, where you don't see them as someone with a, a mental illness. How did the organizations you worked for, particularly the RCMP and the military, which I suppose you have more experience with, how in that time you were with them did their attitude towards mental illness evolve? Well, when I worked for 10 years uh, for Canadian Forces, I didn't deal with, I, I saw people who I think the normal civilian would say were just were absolutely mentally ill because of the things they did. But they were actually the kinds of people who achieved well in a in an organizational environment that require you to put yourself at the extreme high risk 
and still remain competent. And same same thing with with the RCMP. I wasn't doing clinical psychologist. I was doing selection psychologist, psychology, psychology. And again, what you see is you see people who do the craziest things, and within the law, uh, the craziest things, in order to ensure that the public is safe. And so, when I begin to see somebody, when I really begin to look at the clinical issues, and and I actually been in clinical practice for about uh, 17 years before I returned to working for uh, the Canadian Forces. And this was a, an area where I was beginning to deal with people who had what were called clinical symptoms, but you also put them in the context of the areas they've been in, the things that they've done, and you begin to see that not as something wrong with them, but as the sustained pounding on the psyche that creates an injury. And, and, and Steve, you wanted me to talk about occupational stress injury as opposed to PTSD. Right. And so occupational stress injury was a term coined by the Canadian Forces, our, our, our clinicians within the Canadian Forces, uh, to take away some of the stigma associated with having PTSD, which is a disorder. And so what you want to see is that the subtle difference between injury and disorder. So occupa- occupational stress injury isn't uh, listed under, under the DSM-5? Or no, fo- it's, not, it's not DSM-5, but... Which is uh, what, Frank, if you would expand on that, for those that don't know? Sure. Uh, so it, it really is, uh, interestingly enough, uh, I happen to be, uh, just when I was working for Tansoft and, and, and the air crew, I, I spoke to somebody from a, who was uh, coming to Tansoft uh, from a foreign foreign air force uh, it wasn't it wasn't a canadian air force uh and they were also using osi occupational stress injury so it quickly it spread so, around yeah it spread around because i think it's while it's not dsm five black certainly uses it in their uh in their protocols um veterans affairs canada and also many first responders in Canada are beginning to use it. So while it doesn't have diagnostic status, and if we're really trying to write a report for an insurance company, it probably wouldn't work. But as a means for letting people know that this is an injury and the approach to how to heal the injury is really very close to the approach you would use to heal any injury right? as opposed, as opposed to a disorder. So... Was it coined um, as part of an effort to um, to take the stigma away from uh, mental health disorders? Yeah. So uh, the DSM uh, that we're talking about is uh, actually the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of uh, uh, Mental Disorders. And I think That's they're right. working on uh, number five right now. They are on they five is published. Right. So yeah. what what then? You've covered OSI pretty well. What then is uh, PTSD? So PTSD PTSD is uh, limited. To people, uh, people often uh, use it without really having all the uh, the factors that that provide the diagnosis, and it's the only diagnosis where you have to experience a specific event to be diagnosed. Such and as what? Specific, specific event, event is either being in fear of your life, witnessing death, or being around death in some way, uh, and. And, and that particular part of the diagnosis is unique to any category, to any psychiatric category. And so that's the primary uh, indicator 
and it's the one that says if you haven't had that, you don't have PTSD. All right, so uh, something like uh, being under fire would count as a PTSD, a possible PTSD um, right. cause. Uh, something like a mass grave would also be covered under PTSD? Right. Okay. All right. Absolutely. But being asked to do something which, which severely violates your moral code cannot be called PTSD, PTSD, but it is traumatic. So would it follow under OSI then? Fall under OSI. All right. And it's now, also now they actually have a term for that, moral injury. Right. That's been kicking around for a number of years now. I think it's just sort of gaining traction. Um, yeah. You, you hear of OSI, but you don't hear of uh, moral, moral injury. injury. Um, and a lot of the guys I spoke to over the years in my uh, medical practice, if you will, um, yeah. they they definitely they they definitely had some aspect of that, and probably because of our culture and the yeah. thou, thou shalt not kill or thou shalt not murder, depending on the uh, Bible you're looking at. Yeah. Um, did you find with the the because you worked through with Kansas for the best part of Afghanistan, correct? Yeah. And did you find that moral injury was definitely a factor, or did most of the guys hold up fairly well under that? Um, there's the enemy, and I, he's meant to be killed, and I can I can do that. Those typically weren't the issue. The issues were more subtle, and and I mean recognizing that, especially when you get into the special forces, the sense of what the job is is very clear, and so you do understand that it is the intent that you're going to take someone's life. And not in this, not in some way that's kind of random, but in the in in the aid of an operation and to limit, if you will, to limit the damage that person could have done. All right. So the more the moral injury comes from a broader perspective, which is that you're asked to do things that don't necessarily conform to the need to do that, and may have an agenda which is good. So an example might be shooting someone who isn't really uh, you can't legally shoot. A combatant, yeah. yeah, absolutely. I know one of the one of the news issues in the last couple of years, well, most recently with the Australian Special Forces, but uh, oh, yes. with our guys earlier, um, there is one one officer who had uh, killed a badly wounded Taliban and was uh, yeah. taken to court and yeah. discharged for it. Yes, yeah. so yeah. that w- that would be a moral injury kind of thing. That would not quite be moral injury because that particular incident, the officer felt that it was more humane to in the person's life and allowed them to die slowly because they were going to die anyway. Okay. Yeah. So a moral injury is being asked to uh, not, so in one case, and it, uh, it's, it's not related to Canada, but in one case, the moral injury was targeting uh, a, a militant who is embedded in an area where civilians are going to die. Would, would this kind of moral injury apply especially to uh, people, say, who are operating drones from Hundreds of miles away. Uh, yeah, it can. Uh, I mean, it depends upon how uh, how precise they are. But yes, it can. That that can certainly happen. Uh, the other thing that happens is that leaders, and it, I mean all leaders, are not. No leader, leaders are not are not created equal. No, they're not, certainly leaders not. Have the uh, uh, intent to protect as best they can the soldiers under them. Some leaders would prefer to get promoted. And they're looking at ways to protect that path to promotion. So they're there to yeah. get the check in the box and not necessarily look after the well-being of their soldiers. Yeah, yeah. And that that um, well, that's quickly picked up by the soldiers under these guys. That uh, oh, yeah. they're looking for check in the box. They're not fools. Um, and that kind of thing can lead to uh, an OSI due to 
perceived bad leadership, not there to help you out, not there to protect you. Yeah, yeah. And so, and so the leaders that in that way obviously don't necessarily always have the respect, and uh, but they have the power. Right. And, and so, uh, just doing things that that their order people are ordered to do, if they think that it really isn't necessary uh, and create moral injury. Is there a, is there a way of, uh, other than producing better leaders, <laughs> which I think the Canadian Forces is relatively good at, at uh, picking out people and, and putting them in leadership positions? Although, sure, of course, I mean, it doesn't happen frequently, but when it happens, it, it, it is notable. Well, my wife often asks every time I got promoted, do they really know what they're doing? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and they didn't. And if they'd known what they were doing and how great you were going to be, they probably wouldn't have put you. <laughs> well, thanks for that, Frank. Um, back onto the topic at hand, uh, PTSD and OSI. Is there any way, I'm thinking of things like um, resistance to interrogation. Is there any way of inoculating guys against PTSD and OSI? Uh, I think that if you so, and, and this is the, the research. The research is essentially uh, my personal observation. So if you're not going to find it anywhere. You and, and you anybody's quite welcome to say that's not right. One of the easiest ways, especially in highly trained soldiers, to prevent PTSD is don't burn them out. Right. Okay. So I they, mean, they get the time to get home and rest. That's right. Because if you think about it, it, it isn't necessarily the single incident that creates this. Is there no break? And it just builds up. Is part of the problem, like during the first two world wars in Korea, uh, part of the problem is we get home so fast. I mean, we don't have time to you know, sit around with the boys and talk about what happened or what didn't happen or what should have happened. We're home literally from the battlefield to home within days. Whereas the troops from overseas had weeks to uh, decompress, if you will. Well, certainly there's no time to uh, consolidate what's happened. But also, especially uh, in a a military that's overtaxed, there's no time in between just to get back to normal and see that the world isn't always in the field. Right. And as many Canadians might not realize, they may realize we have a have a uh, fairly small forces in comparison to its population and to other militaries, but our special mm-hmm. forces in particular go out the door frequently without much of a break in between. Sometimes, right. sometimes days, sometimes weeks only. So they've just come yeah. from a highly stressful uh, place like Afghanistan and then end up going into Iraq, for instance, within a couple of weeks yeah. of one or the other. Yeah. So that tends to stress the mental mental health even more, I suppose. Yes. Right. Absolutely. So and, and so, go ahead. So I was going to say, is there any way do you think that can, uh, other than more period of rest time between operations, is there any way to protect from uh, PTSD? So I mean, if you think about it, what you're really trying to do is you've got uh, a a system and highly trained soldiers that where it's really kind of interesting because. They, they, and you, I mean, you are one of them, uh, you can draw upon automatic processes consciously. If the soldier is not trained as well as you are, uh, actually doesn't, it comes out, automatic processes are triggered by events. Special forces have a series set of of automatic processes, and they pick one depending upon what's what's next, okay? Right. Can you you give an example? It's called the Agile Mind. So... uh, a person who's not trained as well may go into a building, and just because the build, they think the building is uh, 
full of, of uh, insurgents start shooting. Right. Special forces go in, take a moment to see who's in the building, and then shoot appropriately. A surgical strike rather than a uh, That's right. blunt in, okay. injury, instrument. And it really isn't as often the kind of uh, friendly fire problems in the Canadian forces or that letting go and just doing horrific things. That, that's rare. What, what kind of mentality do you think is attracted to uh, special forces? Well, I mean, there's people who just want to, you know, I mean, they want to be uh, the best they can. They'd like to be part of a group. Uh, I, I know when I was doing the selection, when somebody says, I'm the person who wants to go over the hill, I said, that's really great, but you're not getting in. Uh, <laughs> because the person who gets in is the person who can demonstrate that they've worked well in groups and that they can make they can take a stand, but also recognize at their at their rank level that stand that they want they want to take may not be the one they will take. Right. So, which pretty which brings thoughts to a book you gave me one time: uh, psychopathic traits within organizations. It was something yeah. along those lines. Yeah. Does does uh, the the military and the special forces um, units in particular? Uh, do they attract psychopathic uh, or people with psychopathic tendencies? Uh, so the psycho, what we know is actually a, there's a wonderful book to read, uh, and I, it's called The Wisdom of Psychopaths. That's it. That's one you okay. gave me, yeah. And so, what, so The Wisdom of Psychopaths is really says that, that psychopathy, which is the technical term for it, is uh, there is a range. It's not I'm a psychopath. It's that I may have some tendencies that are consistent with the diagnosis of psychopath, okay? Right. A part of those are being able to step away and look look without emotional connection to what's in front of you, which if you happen to be a surgeon, it's not a bad idea. And if you happen to be a lawyer, it's not a bad idea. And to some extent, if you happen to be a psychologist who has to differentiate between the uh, tension and the, the, and the distress in front of you and your own experience of that, which needs to be distant, is not a bad idea. And so you want some people who are not going to get wrapped up in the emotional turmoil that they're, that they're sitting in. And that's, to some extent, one of the components, but certainly not all the components of psychopathy. I need to be able to do very bad things to very bad people and be able to walk away from that without feeling that there's something really, really wrong with me. Bring it home to the family kind of thing. That's right. So think about it as having a set of components. And our intent when we're selecting people into the special forces is make sure that not many of those components are, are in the candidates who come in. And is a similar but similar standard applied to... Want, sorry. Uh, is there a similar standard or uh, um, within police forces? Uh, like the psych, psycho, uh, psychopathic tendencies or... Um, Factors. No, it really isn't. I mean, it's it's a bit of a that's 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 the kind of the clinical intuition. Uh, is this person going to uh, uh, do something that's going to harm themselves because they can't manage the you know the reality that they're going to do bad things at times to bad people? Right. Uh, so and, and you since for their own protection, you try to make sure they don't get in. <laughs> it can't be an easy thing to spot, or is it? You know, what, what, what we do uh, is we ask them to tell us about what they've done. So we have a test, but we also ask them to tell about what they've done. And, and 
the, the people who are trying to uh, not present themselves authentically will inevitably uh, show that because they won't talk about anything other than how good they are. Yeah. So, I mean, once you've seen a whole bunch, you recognize there is a pattern that's successful, and then you begin to, to play with what that pattern is. I don't want to talk a lot more about that because then people will think that they now know how to get in. <laughs> we'll, we'll skip over that part. And get to the next yeah. big question I think I have is, how is the Canadian military in general, and you worked with them for a good number of years, how have they changed in either accepting or how grudgingly accepting uh, they might be to uh, mental health and how to treat their soldiers? Well, certainly, I think that the Canadian military is more, much more accepting of mental health. And I, and I believe that the actual innovation of, of creating something called an OSI was a way of trying to destigmatize what was happening and also actually developing a, a term that was more realistic given what happens. This is an injury. Right. And it's really different from say, uh, a depression based upon uh, some kind of biological malfunction. This is an injury because the brain has been uh, pushed to limits. That's really kind of strained it. I mean, that's kind of a metaphor. And it's got to be treated like an injury, which is you're going to gradually uh, do some psychotherapy or almost mental physiotherapy uh, to connect yourself to using that thing again in particular ways and recognizing there's very likely to be some things that are going to be more troubling than others forever, but you should, you're working toward getting back to a place where you can begin to recognize that what you want to do is what you are going to do. As you know, I've been uh, interviewing a number of people with uh, PTSD, and um, they, they in no way are somebody you would expect to have PTSD. Um, and by that, I mean they, they kept it under wraps for, for years. Sure. Um, and yeah. the feeling was, and I'm, I'm saying this as a generalization, and I know you can't generalize these things, but right. they, they felt that uh, their PTSD was showing weakness and that they wouldn't get support from, uh, from the above, their superiors. Yeah. Would you say that was a fairly common complaint to the patients you saw? Sure, it certainly was. Uh, and I, I don't know that it's changed a lot. I mean, I haven't been there in a few years. Yeah. Uh, but I do know that the the sense of the people who are connecting with it in a healthy way, in a very healthy way, uh, that what's occurring is a, a acknowledgement that they, and this is the people who have PTSD, uh, the acknowledgement that their life has changed, but now they see the need to to be better with themselves. Now, if you think about it, that doesn't sound very radical, but in a military unit, nobody is looking out for themselves. No. Everybody's looking out for somebody else because that's how the unit survives. So the unit survives because people are looking after each other. And the stronger that bond of uh, yeah, okay. is between the, between the men and the women, the less likely they are to... Uh, Experience PTSD or OSI, would you say? No, that's less likely they are to look after themselves if they do have PTSD because they feel they fail because they're not looking after somebody else. Okay. So the first thing one has to do is to let people give themselves permission to do what they need to do as opposed to try to get past this and do what they think they should do. This very much reminds me of mindfulness. Yeah, yeah. So being aware and accepting of what, what they have before them. Yeah. And mindfulness, and 
let me just say a couple of things about mindfulness. Mindfulness has been touted, and it, it does, it works. But mindfulness and also meditation can be very, very dangerous for people with PTSD because it opens up too much space. Yes, I, I remember uh, when I was training under you for the mindfulness program, yeah. um, you had mentioned something about along those lines that it might uh, you know, cause you to be distressed. I was thinking yeah. at the time, and I, I think we had a conversation about how could this yeah. meditation possibly be causing you more distress? And then we did the slow meditation, the slow walk. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, I remember it hit me so hard. Um, you know, it upset because it reminded me of uh, military funerals. And, I, right. and it was just, yeah. it was just so much of an impact. So I, I can see, I can see where, where it can be dangerous to the individual. Yeah. And so the first thing to do then is to recognize the easiest way to practice mindfulness is to have something that you're doing and just pay attention to it. And it, it, sound, it sounds so easy, but our monkey brain takes over and oh, yeah. throws us all over the place. But, but, but Steve, you're already practiced at it. If you're firing a rifle, your attention is right there. Your breath is right there. Well, many times I got guys uh, when they were about to be, when they were becoming upset or irate about something or feeling yeah. some sort of negative emotion to focus on the breathing. So if you're focusing yeah. on the breathing, it's much harder to focus on what's, What's disturbing you? Right. And to come back to the breathing, breathing every time you got thrown off. And so when you're doing that, what you want to do is to, is to make that focus on the breathing and make that focus on the, on the activity to be something that you're familiar with. And then what you're doing is you're learning to get to learning to see it all over again because you're paying attention to it again. Right. You're not trying to make it disappear. You're trying to bring it into focus. Right. And understand. Yeah. And so... So the couple of couple of three things. First, is that it's important if you're trying to recover from an OSI or PTSD, is that it's it is like a physical injury. If you don't attend to the distress before it becomes overwhelming, because it's that much. Sorry, you're going to trigger. You're going to re-injure. Always stopping just before you know you're going to have to stop. All right. So uh, back to uh, my my question to sort of see if I understand it correctly. The organization itself, the military in particular, has sort of accepted PTSD and uh, occupational stress injuries uh, as, as a whole part of the machine, but the parts of that machine themselves, the soldiers under un, under that, are not okay. quite as accepting. They feel a sense of failure or can feel a yeah. sense of failure because they think it's it let the team down or... It let the team down. Right. And to be honest, sometimes the team's not very, not very uh, gracious about being feeling they being let down, and so they, they can be pretty harsh. I, I would say it's a dog-eat-dog world in the military, especially among the combat arms soldiers who were very well-driven, uh, well, well-driven, well goal-reaching goal kind of guys. Absolutely. Who don't let weakness pass very uh, very easily, or even perceive Absolutely, absolutely. And so it really is very difficult but also extremely important when you say it's an injury and I only, an injury only heals if you play within the skin. All right. So it uh, sort of brings me to another question then. Individuals with PTSD or OSI, what can they do for self-help? Sorry, I didn't quite hear the last question. The, uh, the guys who are suffering through PTSD or o- OSI, what can they do for self-help? Like, I mean, uh, other than seeking medical attention, uh, what what can be some of the things they can do to... Uh... So, you know, you know, fascinating what happens is that what that one of the major things about PTSD 
is you don't trust things anymore because the world, OSI is PTSD, the world has moved into a state where you felt totally out of control. Okay? That's okay. what trauma is. Trauma is that the world is not, is not uh, uh, manageable anymore. It's out of control. So, and, and sometimes what happens is that if you take, do something uh, physical, uh, I, the, the number of people who had uh, suffered from PTSD had taken up stonemasonry just because it's so solid and so predictable that when you're doing it, your attention's there because you can't do it well unless you put attention. And at the end of it, you saw something that you created. Now, I'm not suggesting that's a, a magical cure, <laughs> but it is, it is clear that you're looking for something that allows you to look at it and know you've done it, and it's a felt experience. It's not a cognitive experience. Right, so again, it sort of makes you focus yeah. on one thing and rather than um, yeah. scattered thoughts. And the other thing you do that's really important is you trust your body, and when it says, this is not healthy for me, you don't do it. Now, remember, that's different from push through. Which is generally what we do in the field. That's right. This is push if you have that opportunity with, within the tempo of the unit you're working with. That's right. And to, and to create those opportunities when you are doing things that are just doing them. Going to Walmart, for instance, that's a classic one. There's too many things going on, and the hypervigilance is overwhelmed, and you don't know who's there, and you don't know what's happening. And so the anxiety increases astronomically. I've experienced that myself. Yeah, yeah. It's it's only been for short periods of time, but I can remember coming back from an operation, and uh, I think I spoke with you about this, coming back from an operation being uh, really nervous around groups of brown people. You know, I, yeah. I knew why I was nervous, and I knew that it was didn't make any sense to be nervous, but I was, and yeah. But I also knew that it would take me a little time to get through it. Of course, I did. But uh, yeah, it can be an overwhelming uh, sensation. And it, you're trying to make it mind over matter, but it's matter over mind. Right. And so ultimately what you do is you say, I'm going to go to Walmart. I don't care where. I'm going to go to Walmart and walk in until I know I don't want to do this anymore. And then I'm going to walk out. But okay. um, a lot of the guys I spoke to they use exercise as a, uh, as a way of coping. And of course, many, many of them with dark humor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, of course. What your what your average civilian would think of it's very disturbing. <laughs> they found they found humorous and uh, um, relaxing, if you will. But uh, that's right. Sure. What what can uh, friends and family do to help somebody uh, suffering through PTSD? Uh, you know, what's interesting is that often you know, uh, the person who's suffering from PTSD does everything possible to alienate the family, not on purpose, but the way that the way they manage it is is counterproductive. Using uh, uh, self-medicating, typically with alcohol or drugs, uh, isolating themselves because they uh, don't want to feel feel they're different, uh, all kinds of things. Right. Sometimes what helps is that the family just gets on with their life as they can without necessarily pushing to include, but always inviting. So stay open to... Uh... Stay open to, to his his or her yeah. uh, pain, but yes. but to make sure that they they know the door is always open for them to come in and 
talk or yeah, because, share or whatever. A- absolutely. And that's the crucial part is that this is going to move only so fast. You can push really, really hard. It's going to move only so fast. You can push really, really easy. It's going to move only so fast. And so what you're trying to do is to look after yourself in the presence of this as a family member. While, you know, hopefully nothing too bad, too terrible is going to happen. Typically it doesn't. Sometimes it does. And that's tragic. It does. While the person who is actually experiencing PTSD has a sense just to connect with what they need because their their brain is scattered. They don't know what they need. Right. Which, to sort of sum that point up, one of the people I interviewed, uh, I said, what can family and friends do to help? And she said, don't nag. Right. (laughs) You know, so (laughs) it's it's only going to go as fast as as it's going to go. You're not going to be able to speed it up. And if you think about, if you just put it in as a metaphor, you've broken every emotional bone in your body. And if you were thinking about having broken every emotional bone in your body, you wouldn't be thinking about running a marathon or even going to Walmart. You would be in a cast in a bag. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good analogy. And that's what's happened. I mean, a whole bunch of emotional bones have been broken. And the only way of healing that is through time. Yeah, it's time. Well, time and whatever tools you have in your toolbox, whether that's mindfulness yeah. plus exercise, eating well, Trying to get to good sleep, not dwelling on the uh, negative. What else can we do? So you asked the question before that I that I answered. If I answered, I answered it badly. So let me give you. You ask, is there anything you can do to buffer against? Right. And I talked about burnout being a component. And so one of the things you want to think about, and this is really important, is that burnout can be to some extent buffered if you spend some time using another part of the brain and the one that's associated with burnout. And so even if you're in the field, it's important not to always be wrapped around what's going to happen uh, on the operation or when you're going to go out again or what's out there. Or, or You want to be able to step away sometimes and just do nothing that has anything to do with that. Just give that part of the brain a rest. Whether it's... Could be going to the gym. Masonry or planting a garden. That's right. Well, that's solid advice. And I, and I think uh, the, at least uh, a couple of the guys I know uh, that I spoke to, and you would know them if I'd mentioned their names, um, yeah. that's what they said too, is taking the focus and putting it into something else. And uh, one of the guys who you wouldn't think is a gardener, he mentioned gardening as a way of you know, refocusing and readjusting. And, and coming back to what he thought was some sort of a norm. So one of the questions I asked each of the, um, the people I interviewed was, I can pretty much guess what your answer to this is, um, can it be cured? Can PTSD be cured? Uh, <clears throat> I've got a knee replacement. Did I cure my knee? I can walk. Is it my knee? No. But it's a knee I can use well. So so what you're so saying is... Words, can... We're not talking about curing it. We're talking about you've had an injury. And that injury is something that's going to be present at some level, either something positive that you say, oh, this gives me an understanding of what people go through, or it's something that just because it's changed you, you don't want to have. I've got a uh, titanium knee. It works, it works well enough for me to do many things I like to do. It's not many. Can you still bicycle? Yeah, I do. That's good. Don't, don't run, though. <laughs> I was told your heart only had so many beats and you don't want to use them all up at once. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so think of it as being cured. Think of it as, as coming to an awareness of how the world can be. Right. And the simple fact is it may be curable at some point in time. I mean, 
the brain is an amazing thing that we just don't know a lot about yet. I mean, we, there's many things we do know about it, but yeah. is there something in there that we can say, you know, you can get over PTSD like you can get over a flu, for instance. You suffer through it for a while, but the body eventually, or the mind eventually heals itself. So I, I come from the southern states, and there are numerous poisonous um, state snakes in the area, it's an area where I grew up. And so when I'm walking through high brush, of course, my attention is almost rustling beside me. Your attention is what, sorry? Almost rustling beside me. <laughs> okay. I came, I, I, I came, I, I uh, did my graduate work at York, and that's because and I did it at York University because I'd never been out of North Carolina in my life, and I said I wanted an adventure. And so I did, and then I wound up working for the Canadian Forces. But so that was in the late, that was in the mid '60s. To this day, when I'm walking in high brush, I listen for the rustling. I don't watch for the thing that's more dangerous because I live in a rural area. The coyote is stalking me. Okay, <laughs> because that wasn't what I grew up with. So it's kind of instead of a muscle memory, it's a memory memory. And things that are dangerous record more easily and are more permanent. Well, that's part of our evolutionary yeah. map, I guess. I guess, uh, to sort of sum it up, uh, trying to keep it under an hour here, what, what, what's your final word on, uh, give you the final word on PTSD and OSI and how, how to look at it, maybe? Or how, to, how mean, to get through it? So most people who get through it well recognize it's an injury that's essentially changed the way in some sense that they're going to see the world and it's and the intensity with which it experiences tends to over time diminish but it takes a long time it's not it's not going to happen overnight so the thing is to manage your expectations that's right and you also manage the fact that you need to do the things for yourself that will help you connect with how you want to live your life now in the presence of it. And as I say, it, it, there's certainly a lot of research on the positive impact of PTSD, believe it or not. In what respect? And often that mean, means that people change their orientation to things to begin to see that there are things they haven't done that they would like to do now. So stop and smell the roses kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. Where they wouldn't before. And that those things are things they can actually engage in and feel like they're doing something important for themselves. It's that need to look at yourself and say, I also deserve. This is not my failure. This is not where this is not what this is. This is not a failure. This is my body said, you've been done much too long. Now let's stop and let's connect with what you can do allow you to look after yourself a little bit. Excellent way to sum it up. But I guess the first step is in being aware that you have a problem and seeking help for it. Yeah. And again, I I love the the concept of injury because injury is really what it is. Rather than a disorder or an illness. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, DSM-5 that pays the insurance premiums from, from the insurer uh, it's PTSD, but PTSD itself altered a, a physical state in the brain, and the response system is high uh, upregulation and a 
a very intense startle response. Which many of us, uh, yeah. coming back off of uh, you know, of various uh, uh, operations, startle responses there were enhanced for quite some time. I guess it's always there, but it's amplified yeah. for, well, for me, it was weeks at a time. Absolutely. Well, as ever, I've walked away wiser from uh, yet another conversation with you, Frank. As you can say, stay on the line. And uh, All right. Well, once again, thanks a lot, Frank. Uh, you're welcome. When does your second book come out? Uh, actually, I, I, mean, I have it online uh, now if anyone wants it. Uh, and uh, I, I send it out uh, uh, frequently uh, just for... Uh, getting people commenting. I've just had it copy edited, and then I'm going to shop it around with the publisher, uh, and then we'll see. But what I'm actually doing, right? Actually, what I am going to do uh, is I'm going to. It's going to become a 12-month course in developing mindfulness skills for the workplace, and that'll start sometime in January, February. Excellent. Well, good luck to you on that. Um, give Lynette a hug for me when you uh, see her again. I will. Thanks again, Frank. And thanks no again. Thanks again for all of you who are listening. That means you, Mom. And uh, take care of yourselves. Live for today, as you don't know what tomorrow will bring. And look after each other out there. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Rockus Bacchus.